hope everyone is uh, staying safe. And yes, Mr. Shem, we should see Yeshua for all of the Paul Yisrael. Um, I don't know if, I'm sure you have been hearing, given, given the Chabad Seminary, but all of the, uh, the Chayalim uh, that are stepping forward to put on tefillin and sitzes, literally, and these are people who are not religious, uh, literally uh, tens of thousands of, of people. It's mamish an opportunity. To, I mean, unfortunately, it's a very, very sad reason that we need war to bring people to tshuva, but it happens to be that sometimes it's precisely these difficult experiences that bring people closer to Hashem, and that in turn is rachamim, causes rachamim that uh, allows the tzara to, to abate. I think there was a story of a fellow, I think it was a shaliach here in Eretz Yisrael, where uh, he lost his son, he lost his son, and he was on a flight, and he actually made an announcement that he said, uh, I have a son who can no longer wear tefillin because he's not alive. Would people on the plane put tefillin on in memory of my son? So every single person, every single man on the plane put on tefillin, and the pilots came out. They they took turns, they're like three pilots. So uh, the pilot came out, and each pilot put on tefillin as well. So Le'ilo'i Nishmat, his son, at least at that point, uh, there were like 250 people. Well, 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 I, I don't know how many, I mean, those are the total amount, but whatever the number of men were who put on, who put on tefillin, what an ili neshama, that, that is an amazing thing. So uh, if there is um, a silver lining in a very, very dark situation, this is some of the silver lining that we're able, that we're able to see. And of course, this is even more so. Tefillin are more expensive, so I, I got uh, an email that uh, they're trying to raise tefillin, uh, the price of tefillin to, for soldiers, so each pair of tefillin goes for $500, which is yes. a lot. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, but it, it, is, it is a lot of money, unfortunately, even though 500 is actually a discount, but I feel even so, it's a lot of money. Sitches is much cheaper, and as a result, you do have even more people who, are, who want to wear sitches as they go into, into the army. So I thought today, we, 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 we did begin last week a subject on um, fertility, and we'll continue that for sure. But I thought today, in light of the matzav, maybe I would digress a little bit and talk about uh, the Jewish laws of war. What is the, is there a halacha of war? Is there a law of milchama? Uh, for example, I'll, I'll mention two questions I'm, I'll discuss. One is uh, the issue of killing civilians, non-combatants. Uh, as you know, um, well, Israel is more humane than virtually every army in the world. Israel gave warning to the citizens in Gaza to leave before they started bombing. Hamas wanted them to stay because that way they could say Israelis killed more people. Even this thing about the hospital, you know, uh, the immediately Hamas announces and the whole world press says Israel bombed a Palestinian hospital that killed, you know, 500 people. When it turns out, it wasn't Hamas, it was Islamic Jihad, some other organization, was aiming a missile at Tel Aviv, and it misfired and destroyed their hospital. So I'll I'll give Islamic Jihad credit that they did not intentionally want to kill their hospital. They just wanted to kill us. Okay, so maybe that's, <laughs> that's their zuchus. But, but Lamaisa, uh, talk, about, talk about the Pasuk that says Hashem turns the evil back to the Russia. That's exactly what, what happened in this case. So that, is not, that has nothing to do with Israel, but, but, but Lamaisa, when Israel bombs Gaza, obviously there are going to be many civilians that are killed, 
And one of the halachic questions is, well, uh, does halacha permit us to kill people who are not directly involved in milchama? And a second issue I'm going to discuss, I'll discuss other issues as well, is the very, very frightening prospect, which Israel has done in the past, of prisoner exchanges, right? Mm -hmm. Hamas is holding, they claim, uh, 200, close to 200 hostages. I think they released two American citizens. But still, there are many, many Israelis who are held as hostage. In fact, this was mamish heartbreaking. Uh, There was a gentleman, a man, I guess father and mother, but they interviewed the father. Uh, They found the body of their eight-year-old daughter who was murdered. An Israeli girl uh, murdered. And he was crying, but he said, Baruch Hashem, I mean, this is, Baruch Hashem, she was murdered. Because if she would be a hostage and tortured and raped or whatever they would do, that would have been so much worse. So he was actually expressed, I mean, he was sobbing, but he expressed his gratitude that if this had to happen, she was murdered. So the fate of the hostages is a very, very serious issue. But you know, Hamas in the past has successfully negotiated that they would release hostages in exchange for their uh, prisoners held in Israeli jails who were terrorists. These are prisoner exchanges, hostage exchanges. If you remember, the last big one was a few years ago with the Chayal Gilad Shalit, who was actually held for, I think, five close to five years. And in order to get him released, Israel had to free 1,000, 1,000 to what? 1,000 terrorists to get Gilad Shalit freed. And unfortunately, those terrorists re-enter the population. And indeed, we actually know that at least one of the main organizers of the Hamas massacre on Simchat Torah was a terrorist who had already been in an, in an Israeli jail serving a life sentence, who got out as part of this, as part of this uh, hostage exchange. Now imagine this, if Israel was willing to release a thousand for one, now there's 200. So basically Hamas is basically saying, you gotta release everybody. Mm. Very, very generous of them. They said, if you release every single mm. person, every single uh, terrorist that is held in Israeli prisons, we will release all of your hostages. Now Israel is not gonna to agree to that, that much I can tell you, but, but they'll agree to something because they've always agreed to something. And the question I want to discuss is, and it's a very difficult issue because obviously, you know, we don't want to make Yilad Shalit feel bad in any way. And, you know, so uh, we don't like to talk about it that publicly in that way. But we're going to, I'm going to talk about today a little bit of the halachic aspects of what you might call prisoner exchange or hostage exchange because there are some very interesting halachic sources on this particular topic. Not that the government cares. I mean, obviously, the government will make uh, whatever decision it makes. It's not going to necessarily call up rabbis and ask them for halachic decision-making. But at least we as Jews who are, who are trying to be committed to halacha, to Jewish law, to Hashem's Torah, we should at least know what would the Torah say we do in such a difficult, heart-wrenching situation. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Can I add to your first question a little bit? Yeah, sure. Right? Uh-huh. But um, yeah, like like I know the IBF dropped drop papers saying you guys should yeah. leave. Yeah. Um, but then I also saw, I think I saw it today, maybe yesterday, last night, that they also sent out ones saying 
if you don't leave, we're just considering you part of Hamas? Yeah, so that's going to be, yeah, so that'll be part of our discussion. Meaning, if you're given the opportunity to leave and you don't leave, maybe that upgrades you or downgrades you to be effectively part of the armed part of the enemy. Right, that'll be part of, uh, yeah, well, that'll be part of what we'll we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, And again, I mean, I don't want to be sarcastic, but uh, I don't believe Hamas, uh, you know, gave us the courtesy of giving us advance notice. Hey, we're going to. you know, bomb a few people, uh, please get out. You know, that's, so it's so interesting how the world generally creates, uh, you know, even when they denounce Hamas, but they, they, they created moral equivalence where, you know, yeah, Hamas did a real bad thing, but Israel also does a real bad thing, so everybody's bad. You know, it's just not the same uh, equivalence uh, in terms of uh, Hamas cold-bloodedly murdering decapitating babies, uh, raping women. Uh, Israel, on the other hand, did give the Gazans or give the Palestinians warning, gave them opportunity. If the Palestinians had difficulty getting out, it was actually Egypt's fault because Egypt was not opening uh, what's called the Rafah crossing, etc. So uh, the truth of the matter is, you know, uh, the world uh, defended Israel for like two or three days, now already... As they say, the narrative uh, begins to change a little bit. That's still, I would still say, um, you know, it's mainly pro-Israel, but you can already see there's a lot more criticism of the Israeli response than the initial, uh, you know, day or two, you know, right, right, right afterwards. So, but now again, but I, I'm not, I'm not surprised. This is normal. This is to be absolutely expected. And therefore, when people say, "Did you hear what they're saying against <laughs> Israel?" I said, "So what else? What else is new? I mean, there's nothing." Uh, there's nothing unusual in this. This is the nature of Golos. And one of the things we have to remember, that although Baruch Hashem, we have a Jewish state, and Baruch Hashem, uh, every Jew in the world can come here, uh, and Eretz Yisrael has Kedusha, and uh, we can daven in the Kotel, the Makam HaMikdash, but we are in Golos. I mean, don't, don't be mistaken that we are in Golos. You know, um, to, to digress for a moment, uh, in the Six-Day War, which is before probably any of you were born, in the Six-Day War, there was a lot of euphoria in Eretz Israel. Many people thought Mashiach was going to come for sure because we gained the Harabayas and we had the Kotel after 19 years and Yerushalayim was reunited. And many, many, many people said, this is for sure, Mashiach is going to come right now, absolutely. And people were even discussing not fasting on Tisha B'Av because... There are religious people, and non-religious people weren't fasting anyway, but religious people were saying, you know, maybe we don't have to fast on Tisha B'Av anymore, Yerushalayim is built up. Uh, and what we've seen over the years is that there's no question that this was a step towards Geula, no question, but a step towards Geula is not the same as Geula. Geula can take, can take a long time. Uh, and we have to remember that Mashiach is ready to come if we're ready to receive him with our Torah and our good deeds and our Abbas Yisrael. As the Rebbe always said, you know, Mashiach is, is, is you know, here, but we got to, you know, bring him to reveal himself. And therefore, until that happens, we are in Gullus. And if we are in Gullus, then all the hostility of the nations of the world is still going to be there. Right? So uh, when there's anti-Israel sentiment and everything else, it's actually not a surprise. That's the way it's always been. And until the Mashiach, uh, that's the way it will be. Now, you may ask me a question. Well, 
who says the anti-Jewish sentiment is going to stop when Mashiach comes? <laughs> Maybe they'll do it after Mashiach. Now the answer there is because it's very, very clear that if you look in the Nevi'im, the books of Yeshayahu, the Mashiach creates a new world, not only for Jews, mainly for Jews, but also for the nations of the world as well. The nations of the world themselves will recognize Hashem. They will look to Yerushalayim as a holy place. Uh, in fact, this is a Pasuk that we said throughout the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur davening, ki beisi beis tefila yikare amen. What does Hashem say? My house will be the house of prayer for all of the nations of the world. In fact, do you know that you know the halacha? You can't become Jewish once Mashiach comes. I mean, let's assume a non-Jew wants to convert to Judaism after Mashiach comes. We don't accept him. Why is that? Because we only accept people who want to be Jewish when it's hard to be Jewish, when it's when people look down at Jews, people oppress Jews. So then, hey, you want to join us? You're probably very sincere because nobody would want to become Jewish unless they really wanted to. But when Jews have all of the brachos of Mashiach, hey, you know, uh, who, who says the guy's sincere? So the gate is closed, right? The gate is, in fact, I even know some uh, non-Jews who are in the middle of a conversion process and they're a little nervous uh, about Mashiach coming because they're going to feel they're going to be out of the gate, you know, on the other side, of the wrong side of the door, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah, that's, maybe that's a legitimate feeling. But the thing is, just because the guy cannot become Jewish once Mashiach comes, doesn't mean they're not going to have an enhanced relationship with Hashem. They will. Everybody, everybody is going to be uplifted. The Beis Hamikdash will be a place of prayer for everybody in, in the world. And uh, therefore, uh, non-Jews will benefit from the Geula too. The Geula will create a world of peace and the like. So I think it's safe to say that we're not going to see anti-Semitism once Mashiach comes. But until the, the revelation of Mashiach, you know, anything can go. So the fact that uh, there's already anti-Israel sentiments, uh, all right, that's par for the course. It's, it's not necessarily anything that disturbing. What is, of course, very, very frightening is the threat of violence against Jews, not only in Eretz Israel, but even in Chutz Laaretz. And, you know, you hear, uh, I just read, they, don't, they, they didn't officially call it a hate crime, so you know, who knows, that uh, a woman in Detroit, it must have been a conservative synagogue or something, she was president of her synagogue, and she was found, so obviously she was a very prominent member of the Jewish community, maybe not the Orthodox, but the Jewish community, and she was murdered in her house in her home in Detroit. Random crime or hate crime because she was Jewish, right? So, you know, what are the, what are the probabilities, uh, so to speak? Uh, and in a way, that's also, everything has its comfort because a lot of people are scared to stay here because they feel they could have more safe safety somewhere else. People want to go to England, they want to go to America. Right? They want to leave Eretz a lot, of, a lot of people leave, you know. And again, um, people ask me all the time, and I and I say I, I can't make a decision for you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Everyone has to make their own decision. I'm not going to be critical of anybody. But one of the things that we see is that the world is not safe, and when the world is not safe, you might as well be here. Meaning, if the pshat would be, this place would be dangerous and every other place is safe, so then we could talk about, okay, better, 
maybe to go to a safe place. At least we could debate it. But if every place is bad, then you might as well be here, right? Because every place is equally bad. So why not be in Eretz Yisrael, be connected to the holiness of the land and the struggle of Am Yisrael? So once again, if there's a silver lining to the things that happen elsewhere, it reminds us that um, Eretz Yisrael is not necessarily more dangerous than other places. And I'm assuming that uh, the fact that you're here, you probably, you, your parents, your families probably came to that conclusion on your own, and I, I think it's a uh, good conclusion to, to come to. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the Jewish law of war, right? The Jewish law of war, the, the word for war, of course, in Hebrew is milchama, as you know. And what's interesting is, uh, and I'm going to base this on the Rambam, Hilchos Molochim. So interesting that, uh, you know, the last two chapters of Hilchos Molochim, the laws of kings, is the very last section of the whole Mishnah Torah. And the last chapters of that last section are about Mashiach, Perek uh, Yud Aleph 11 and 12. Milchama is right before that. So this is just right before the Rambam talks about Mashiach, the Rambam talks about the Jewish laws of war. And the Rambam teaches us, again, by the way, when I say the Rambam, I'm using the Rambam because the Rambam gives you halacha, but keep in mind that the Rambam never makes anything up. Uh, everything the Rambam says is based on discussions in the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, and the various Midrashim. So everything could be traced much further back that we're going to do it, but I'm, I'm going to give you the bottom line. I'm not going to go over all of the sources that would take much too long. The Rambam divides war into two types. There is what is called milchemes mitzvah. There is what is called mitzvah wars. Mitzvah wars are obligation, obligatory wars. Wars in which there is a mitzvah to fight. That's one type of war. The second type of war are what are called milchemet reshus. Reshus means optional wars. Now that already sounds a little funny. You mean there's such a thing as an optional war? I'll get to it. What, how do you say the name of Milchemes reshus. Reshus means you have permission to wage war, but it's not obligatory. Now each of these has very extensive definitions. Let's focus first on when is a war obligatory? When is it a mitzvah war? So the Rambam says there are three categories of mitzvah wars. Category one is the mitzvah to eradicate the seven ancestral nations that inhabited the land of Canaan in the days of Yoshua. Yes, yes, I'll, I'll talk about that. That also needs a little bit of a point. Now, these are seven, these are not the Arabs. The, in fact, these nations are extinct. Uh, this is the Chiti, the Amori, the Prizim, right? The Torah enumerates them. The seven nations. What about okay. the Plishtim? Huh? Is that Plishtim? The Plishtim are not one of the seven they're nations. The Actually, they're not. They're not. They're not. Now, these seven nations are extinct today, they don't exist. So, this category of Muhammad Mitzvah does not apply. But, but let me go back a little bit. When it did apply, well, uh, let me mention the second one, then I'll combine them. Now, the second Milchemet Mitzvah is Amalek. So, there is a common denominator, meaning the seven nations that inhabited Canaan, we must eradicate, and Amalek, we must eradicate. Now, 
just looking at those categories, those categories do include, they're not limited to combatants for sure, they do include men, women, children. And now, it happens to be that these two categories, both of these categories, do not halachically exist today. And the reason they do not halachically exist today is because the seven nations are extinct and Amalek's identification is not known. Now, the reason why it's important that you recognize this is we use the term Amalek sometimes in two different contexts. And it's extremely important that you understand the different contexts. Sometimes people will say, oh, Hamas is like Amalek. Now, Amalek is sometimes used in a spiritual way to represent pure evil. People who are acting out of total evil are using the spiritual poison of Amalek. Okay, that's true, that's true. But, 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 be sure you understand that the particular halachic mitzvah of eradicating Amalek is not a reference to spiritual Amalek. It is a reference to a particular nation called Amalek. See, this is very, very dangerous. Because sometimes, in fact, well, maybe it's not so bad if you call Hamas Amalek because we're fighting them. But sometimes you'll even find a fellow Jew who should never, never be called. A fellow Jew might be called Amalek. Right? If a person is anti-religious, sometimes the Israeli religious world will say, that man is Amalek. Well, besides the fact that you should never call the Jew Amalek, that's absolutely the case, let me point out that that type of language can result in people getting killed because some crazy guy says, oh, this uh, reformed Jew is Amalek. I, gotta, I have a mitzvah to eradicate him. Be sure you understand, the mitzvah to eradicate Amalek does not refer to bad people or evil behavior. It refers to a very, very, very specific nation. Amalek happens to be the grandson of Asaph. So, now, be it as it may, though, even though the seven nations are extinct. Do you know who he is? Like, when you say grandson, do you know which generation he was in? Yeah, he's grandson. Uh, Asaph had a son, Eliphaz. Eliphaz had a concubine, not a regular wife, whose name was Timna. And out of the union of Eliphaz and Timna, a boy was born whose name was Amalek. And he is the uh, origin of the nation of Amalek, so we know exactly. In and fact, we know that he already was trying to wage war against the Jews? Or only well, we, I don't think we have any particular story about him, but his descendants were the first people that attacked the Jewish people. It's like everyone's named after him, so he has to have been a first. Well, he's the, he's the founder of the nation, so he must have had some. Now, now there is an interesting thought that Rav Chaim Shmulevit says. There is a story about this because... Timna, his mother, Timna, was actually a very righteous woman. And she was of the royal house of Egypt, like Hagar. And Timna wanted to marry into Avram Avinu's family. And they rejected her. They thought she was not worthy. So Timna took the attitude, if I can't belong to the good part of the family, 
she had such a desire to connect to Avraham that she would marry into Esav's family. And she said, even if I will not have the dignity of a wife and I will be a mistress or a concubine. So she actually humiliated herself to be connected to Avram in some way. Now you might say, so wait a second. Why should such a righteous woman, she was a righteous woman, why should such a righteous woman have a child, a Amalek? That doesn't sound right. So Chaim Shalevit says, you see the awesome, awful consequence when a person is rejected, when you reject a person. That could create such a bitterness in, in, in their children. In fact, Chaim Shalevitz applied this very, very practically. He was the Roshiva of Mir for a number of years. And he had a shita, he had a view that even if somebody was not such a good student, he would never kick him out. He would never ask him to leave. And when people would ask him, well, why, do you, why don't you kick people out? He would say, I don't want to make more Amaleks in the world. He actually felt that rejection can break a person so much. Now, that's not an excuse. Please understand. Uh, that's not an excuse. You're not justifying Amalek, but, but it is true that a lot of the evil that happens in the world are by people who were rejected at various points in their lives. And one has to be very, very careful. Uh, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, the vast majority of rejections don't turn into Amaleks or Hitlers or, or whatever, whatever it would be. Uh, but um, rejection can break a person a lot. And we have to be very, very careful. In fact, the Chazanish used to say that deciding whether or not to keep a student in a yeshiva is a matter of life and death, and you should need a Sanhedrin of 23, which is the normal number of judges you need to sentence somebody to death. In fact, they tell a story with Ravaran Cutler. It's a very, very interesting story. That he was the founder, he was a yeshiva in Europe, but after World War II, he founded the Lakewood Yeshiva, the biggest yeshiva in America, maybe in the world, depending. Mir and Lakewood are the two contenders for the largest yeshiva in the world. And he spent a lot of his time collecting money. And in those days, even in the United States, many people didn't think yeshivas were important, so they would give him a dollar, two dollars, or nothing. And one of his students who accompanied him once asked him, you know, Rebbe, you're such a great tzaddik. Why do you have to wander from place to place collecting money? So this is what he said. He said, you know, if you kill somebody accidentally, inadvertently, you kill somebody. So you have to go to the city of refuge. And that's described as you're exiled. You have to be exiled. So he said, every teacher of Torah is an accidental murderer. We might have broken the spirit of someone. That's like murdering. Unintentional. We didn't want to do it. So we have to go collect money from place to place uh, because we're, you know, we're murderers. Uh, it's a scary thought, but I, but I certainly, you know, again, I, I, I mean, I myself, well, I've experienced on the receiving end, but unfortunately, I mean, sometimes uh, somebody asks me a question. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. And I'm a little busy, a little impatient. So I may be a little curt in my response. And then all of a sudden I see it's like the person's like, I mean, I'm what? The person like falls apart in front of me. You see it in the face. And it makes me think, gee, 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 gee. You know, um, how careful you have to be. 
not to break somebody. You know, totally accidentally, but it happens, it happens, you know. So uh, this is the idea of Amalek, Rav Chaim Shulabot says. Okay. But again, you, you understand the difference between what you might call the spiritual idea of Amalek and the halachic ideal of Amalek. It is important. There's a lot of evil in the world that we can identify as being spiritually connected to Amalek that we have to fight spiritually. But the actual mitzvah to take a gun and shoot, that applies only to a very, very, very narrow category, the category of direct descent from the nation, which we we don't identify today. That's very important. So when crazy people, and and this is done, uh, kind of kill someone by uh, by saying you're a Malek, they're confusing the two ideas of a Malek. Very important. Okay. Now, even so, though, people do ask a question. We criticize Islam because they believe in jihad, in killing people, even if they're non-aggressive. Don't we have jihad, holy war, because we kill a malek in the seventh day? Now, granted, we don't do that because we don't know who they are, but halacha recognizes a category of genocide. Right? Let's be honest. If you're told to eradicate a nation, man, woman, child, baby, that is called genocide, right? So uh, if I ask the question, uh, does the Torah ever allow genocide? It's rare, it's rare, it's true, but it certainly allows it and even commands it, right? So how do you wrap your, your, your hands around that? So let me give you two interesting points. One is an interesting story by the British author Roald Dahl, who happened, happened to be, he happened to be an anti-Semite, but that's not, that's not relevant for this story. Uh, Dahl is, he, he wrote to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate yeah. fa- thing, Factory, I think. Yeah, but this is another story that he wrote. Uh, um, it's a story about, he describes a whole scene, it's a, short, it's a very short story, he describes a whole scene about a beautiful baby that has an awful whooping cough, and the baby is red in the face, and the baby can barely breathe, and the mother is such a sweet woman, and this baby is her life. And a doctor comes in the middle of the night. Those were the days when doctors made house calls. And uh, the mother begs the doctor, take care of my baby. This is my life. And the baby is is really cute but suffering so much. And the doctor will do what he can. But let's imagine that at the last moment the doctor gets a vision. The baby's name is Adolf Hitler. And the doctor has a vision that if this baby lives, he will kill six million Jews and really millions of other people as well. So what is the compassionate thing to do? What is rachamim? What is rachamim in a case like that? Is rachamim to take, uh, mercy, is, is rachamim to take care of the beautiful, innocent little baby? Or is rachamim to kill the baby, if you could? You see, the thing is, now, now again, I admit none of us have, have this knowledge, okay, so, so, but, 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 but this is a hypothetical. If you knew, again, I, I know that nobody knows, but if you knew that by killing this baby you would save millions of people's lives, then what looks like cruelty turns out to be the most compassionate thing you can do. Meaning short-term mercy 
is not always compassionate. According to halacha, you're allowed to kill baby Hitler. You're allowed to kill what? According to halacha, yeah. you're allowed to kill baby Hitler. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last word. Allowed to kill? You're allowed to kill baby Hitler? Yes, yes, according to that. How do you know? No, 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 no. I, I, again, again, one hundred percent. This but is even you, you. The answer is you don't. The answer is you don't. The answer is you don't. The answer is you don't know. Again, again. I'm not. I'm not giving you any practical ruling at all. I'm just. This is a short story. This is a fiction story, just illustrating a principle. No, no. So here's here's the point about Amalek. Now swing back to Amalek. We don't know. We don't know. We cannot make a judgment that somebody's going to be an evil person. Right? We just don't know. But the one entity that knows is Hashem. So if Hashem tells you, eradicate the nation of Amalek, Hashem is telling you, these are baby Hitlers. These are baby Hitlers. Ah, it looks cruel. Yeah, it is cruel. But in the long run, this will be better for the world. In other words, Hashem can make the Hashem knows. We don't. We don't know. Now, keep in mind, I mean, look, look at this situation. When Shaul was commanded to kill Amalek, Shaul had Rachamim on the king. That king impregnated a woman until he was killed. And that woman had a child that was the ancestor of Haman who would have destroyed the entire Jewish people. In other words, Shaul's Rachamim for one person was on the verge of destroying the entire Jewish nation. So that's one way of looking at it. Uh, but again, but that depends, of course, on your believing in Hashem, that Hashem knows. But there's another point I want to add to the halachic mix, which a lot of people don't know, and this is a ruling of the Rambam. How are we supposed to fulfill that halacha if we don't know what Hashem intends us to do? No, at one, at, one, at one point we did know. Now we don't know. Now we don't know. So. Well, Shaul, well, Shaul, Shaul failed to carry out the commandment. So, so the final commandment will not be fulfilled until Mashiach comes. Right now, uh, we only eradicate Amalek in our heart. Uh, we do not physically eradicate Amalek. We can't do that mitzvah. Uh, it's true. We just do not do the mitzvah in a physical sense. But spiritually, we try to root out There's no way to, there's no way to trace the nation. No, not really. Not, now, Rav Sadja Gaon writes, Rav Sadja Gaon lived in the um, 900s, the, the 10th century. He writes something that's very, very, very strange. He said there was a tradition, and this will sound bizarre, that the Armenians are actually Amalek. Now, the Armenians you know, live, live in Jerusalem. The Armenians have a whole quarter of the old city. It's called the Armenian Quarter. Those are the guys who wear the... Uh, you know, the priests wear the black, uh, and they're pretty, you know, they're fairly peaceful, by the way. I mean, you know, they're peaceful, and they're not known particularly as being anti-Semitic. And yet, Rav Sajigon wrote that, that, that some say they're a mullet. Now, what's fascinating is, you see how, I'm going to tell you a little, little piece of historical, not trivia, but a little bit of detail. You know, the Armenians themselves underwent a tremendous massacre in the beginning of the 20th century by the Turks. The Armenian, this was an Armenian genocide. Uh, and they mourned, they mourned that genocide to this, this day. It's a very big issue for them. The Armenian genocide is what emboldened, emboldened Hitler 
to think about a final solution for Jews because a lot of people told Hitler, what are you talking about? You'll never get away with it. The world will condemn you. you know, I, there's no way you could try to kill you know, the Jewish people. And Hitler said, who complained about the Armenians? Meaning he used the Armenian genocide to give him, uh, so to speak, uh, power to be able to think he could carry out a Holocaust. So it's interesting that Amalek causes, <laughs> if you go through like causes the destruction of the Jewish people even when they didn't intend it, meaning the Armenian victimization. But that's Armenian, only according was to a one claim, one. According to Armenians participated in the Holocaust. I didn't hear you. Armenians participated in the Holocaust. Um, okay, uh, but uh, of course many other people yeah, did too. Yeah. I understand. They, they were pirates, so they were not lovers of yeah. Jews. Uh, they were not lovers. I mean, Ukrainians participated too. I mean, that's why, uh, yeah. yeah, even though uh, Zelensky is uh, supposedly Jewish. Okay, whatever. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's Rav Sajikanda, but he's only one opinion. He's only one opinion, and I cannot say that it's halakhically followed, meaning please do not buy a gun and, and shoot an Armenian. Uh, you know, the halakha is we don't know, and because we don't know, we don't kill it. Again, I'm not, I'm not talking about Hamas. That's, I'll get to that. But we don't go out and kill just some guy because we say they're a Mali. But let me mention another interesting ruling that the Rambam has about the seven nations in Amalek that people don't realize. The Rambam says, even against Amalek and the seven nations, we do not wage war unless we first offer them opportunities for peace. Meaning, even the seven nations and Amalek, we offer them peace. But what is peace? What do I mean by peace? So the Rambam gives two, uh, three conditions for peace. Condition number one: they must accept full obedience to the seven Noahide laws. They don't have to become Jewish. We don't encourage them to become Jewish. But they must accept the seven commandments of Noah. Number one. Number two, they must accept Jewish sovereignty over the land of Israel. They accept Jewish sovereignty. They don't call for two-state solution or, or one-state Palestinian, you know, state of its citizens or whatever the, the language is. And number three, which is really... Well, what do you consider Israel part of the Rambam? I didn't hear you. What is considered Israel part of the Rambam? Well, well uh, the, Israel has boundaries, meaning to say the Torah, the Torah itself, at, at, at the end of the book of Numbers, gives us boundaries. Now, it is true, your, your point is true, that the boundaries of the land of Israel are not the same as the boundaries of the state of Israel, uh, but by and large, the boundaries of the land of Israel are actually la- larger. Exactly. But but part of it is smaller. Meaning meaning a lot, for example, a lot is not within the boundaries of the land of Israel. But Eretz Yisrael goes a lot further north. Eretz Yisrael goes into Lebanon, uh, and certainly Judea and Samaria, which go by the term territories or over the green line. There's no there is no question whatsoever that they are part of Eretz Yisrael. Uh, all the way back to the Torah itself. It's not just talking about Jerusalem. Oh, no, not Jerusalem, not Jerusalem. We want Eretz Yisrael, Jewish sovereignty over, over the land of Israel. 
Okay? Now, what that means is the following. This is, a very, this is something you wouldn't realize. A Amalek does not have to be eradicated totally if they accept these peace terms. So even in our genocide, we do give them peace terms that are not so onerous, accepting of Jewish rule over Eretz Israel and acceptance of the seven commandments of Noah. Now this is a Kiddush. Yeah, yeah, so the third one was, it's really, it may not be a, th- a third one, but it's the uh, idea that um, they will be subordinate to the Jewish people in the state. M- meaning they accept sovereignty, meaning they will not ask for equal political participation. Now... But they're still allowed to live within them. And then, and then, when that happens, they are allowed to live in Eretz Israel, in, in, in the land of Israel, and they are allowed to get stucca and, and social, social programs, we would say in modern terms, meaning they are allowed to be treated with relative equality. Okay? So the Kiddush here is that this is not only true for all non-Jews. I think everybody knew that that was true for Arabs or whatever it is. It's even true for Amalek in the seven days. Now, I got to be honest with you. Rashi and Chumash seems to disagree with the Rambam. Rashi and Chumash says, hey, when it comes to the seven nations and Amalek, no. you got to get rid of them no matter what. Uh, okay, uh, that, that's Rashi's opinion, Rashi's view. And of course, if Rashi says it, uh, we have to pay attention to it. But I think it's very, very important to be aware of the Rambam because the Rambam, I think, is an unusual view. Now, another point I want to bring out is that it's also clear from the Gemara itself that even Amalek can convert to Judaism, become Jewish, if they're sincere. Because how do you know they're sincere? That's an issue. The Gemara even says that there were descendants of Haman, descendants of Haman, who converted to Judaism and became teachers of Torah, Torah scholars. Apparently that's even according to Rashi. In other words, Rashi disagrees with the Rambam that an Amalekite could just do the seven commandments and, and Jewish sovereignty and be saved. But if they do a full conversion. Now, I understand the question is always going to be, hey, maybe an Amalekite is converting just to save his life. Okay, so obviously there would have to be a determination. But I will tell you that there are Nazis. Now, Nazis is not genealogically Amalek, but ideologically they are Amalek. There were Nazis who converted to Judaism. After the, after the war, they saw this as a form of tshuva, a form of penance. It's so true. Um, and, you know, they're sincere. In fact, um, Hitler had a nephew whose last name was Hitler, I think, I think he changed it, who became a professor at Bar-Ilan University. What? And for like 20 years, uh, he kept his identity totally secret. But now, I, don't know, I don't know if he's still alive, but, uh, but at some point he decided to go public with his story that he was Hitler's nephew and you know, whatever it is. And uh, he, became, he, he became and a his Jew. his last name was also Hitler? Say so, what? I didn't hear what you said. His last name was Hitler? His name was Hitler, but he, cha- but he changed no, when he came to Israel. But you know, I'll, I'll tell you what, but the truth, the truth, I'll tell you something though that's a little, uh, you know, maybe it'll upset you a little bit. Um, you know, Hitler, which is a, 
a common Jewish name is the same name as Hitler because in in um, yeah. in Russian like there is no H, so it becomes a, a git, right? So Hitler, Hitler is the same name. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's the name? There was someone saying that Hitler's mother was. There is a there is a possibility that Hitler himself was halakhically Jewish, as as, as frightening as that is. Uh, And one thing is for sure: under under Hitler's own, whether he's halakhically Jewish or not, under his own definition of Jew, for uh, the uh, Nuremberg laws, he absolutely would have qualified as Jew. He had enough percentage of Jewish blood. Who, Hitler? Hitler himself yeah. would have. Come. He yeah. may have been. He may have been halachically Jewish. His mother, to his mother. Uh, but even if he was not, he had. Uh, remember, the Nuremberg laws did not require that you be halachically Jewish. You could be one eighth Jewish from either parents. Uh, and he certainly, he absolutely qualified. Qualified as that. for what? What? What, what was no, 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 no. I'm talking about when, you know no, the Nuremberg laws are the Nazi laws about Jews couldn't own businesses. You know, I mean all the, the anti-Jewish laws of Nazi Germany. No, no, Nuremberg laws were before 1933. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. He also had a following. It doesn't make sense for Claw whether or not he was Jewish because everything that he was preaching was the opposite of what he looked like. So. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously he was not. He was not blonde. He was not a blonde, blue-eyed. Uh, well, what is very again, again, I mean, I'm not, I would not recommend that you read Mein Kampf, which was his his book. Uh, but you know, uh, when he writes, when he, he writes there, you could, you could take. I mean, okay, this is really so crazy. When you you could take isolated pages from Mein Kampf, and they would sound like a a, a muster talk in a in a girl seminary. He, 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 he talks about he talks about sinias, He talks about modesty. He talks about he talks about all sorts of <laughs> values. In, you know. I mean, what what is what is going on there? Uh, the peculiarity of, of evil masquerading as good and taking on the guise, the, the appearance, the appearance of a kedusha, the appearance of kedusha, how dangerous hijacking kedusha and using it for for that. But again, a lot of the stuff in there, you know. Okay. All right. Whatever it is, this is a a great, great mystery. Okay. So, so the point I want to make again, again, I don't want to lose sight of. So, we're, we're defining a term, milchemes mitzvah. First category, seven nations. Second category, Amalek, and uh, those are genocidal rules. But I gave you two ideas on the genocidal rule. One was Roel Dahl, that sometimes short-term cruelty is compassion in the at the end. And the second idea is the Rambam's ruling that even Amalek and the seven nations do have an opportunity of shalom, so it's not an absolute genocide. Okay, but bottom line is those two categories do not apply today. Okay, that's very important because number one, the seven nations are extinct, and number two, except for Afsad Yagon, we no longer have a definitive identification of Amalek, so we're not allowed to kill anybody because we think they might be Amalek. Now, you'll notice the following. The Rambam does not mention conquering the land of Israel. Okay, let me mention, I'll mention the third one. The third one doesn't mention it. Now, the third one the Rambam mentions is a war to defend the Jewish people 
from an enemy that attacks it. We'll call that a defensive war. So of the three categories of Milchames Mitzvah, the Rambam has three categories, one, two, three. One and two are not practiced today. Three very much is practiced today, and indeed that is the war that we are fighting. So if we were to ask, is the war that we are fighting an optional war or an obligatory war, it is a mitzvah war, an obligatory war, because we are fighting an enemy that is trying to destroy us. Remember, Hamas's charter, Hamas was founded, whenever it was founded, uh, specifically says we want to destroy the uh, states of Israel, and uh, we see that they will do so not politically, uh, like the Turi Carter might want to do, uh, they will do so by murder. Uh, and therefore there's a mitzvah to fight and eradicate and defeat this particular enemy. Now, there is a difference, however, between the first two categories and the third category. The first category, I'm sorry, the first two categories is indeed genocide. It's man, woman, child, unless you have the Rambam's Shalom, you know, and the like. The third category, however, is not, in other words, fighting a defensive war. We do not deliberately target non-combatants, civilians, or children. We are supposed to eradicate the fighters and to whatever degree possible keep the other people alive, but I'll get to what happens when they're in the way, human shields and the like. So the genocidal aspect of the Jewish law of war only applies in categories one and two, Category three is not a genocidal war. It is a war against an aggressive enemy. And to whatever degree we can, now we, we, again, obviously the big issue is we can't always control it. But to the degree that we can, we try not to have it spill over to non-combatants. And that is why Israel, now, again, the state of Israel is not following halakha, but it happens to be the notion of warning people to get out of the way happens to be consistent with what halacha would tell us to do. So in that way, the state of Israel is, again, they're not doing it because of halacha, but they're they're following halacha in this particular practice. Yeah? Um, To what extent is it a command to have a war? Like, let's say a defensive war can mean just getting them out of our land. Like, when it starts becoming offensive, is that not a anymore? Like going into Gaza, let's say? Or- uh, so, that's an, so that's an excellent question. The excellent question is, what's called defensive? Now, now obviously, well, well first, of all, first of all, let me point out, Gaza, see, Gaza is actually part of Eric Israel, so that's not so yeah, much of a problem. Like but, where, where, but where you had a problem was Lebanon. Uh, and Gaza. It's no, it's not about the We just said it's not about the land. land. It is about the land. No, it's about protecting the city. No, no, I, I, understand, I, I understand that. But once you have once you have an enemy that is that is in your land that is in your land, you 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 go ahead. You can eradicate them. Uh, the question is, once they leave and they're not in your land, are you allowed to go after them? Uh, now that was that was an issue in Lebanon, and it may be an issue now in Lebanon, Hezbollah, where Lebanon may not be part of Eretz Israel. Uh, it was also uh, an issue with uh, a slightly different nuance. Preemptive strike. In other words, your question boils down to two different aspects. Yeah. One is, they invaded me, and now I'm fighting them. Can I pursue them into their country? 
The other issue is what if they didn't invade? What if, for example, Israel would have discovered uh, what Hamas was planning before Hamas invaded? Would they be allowed to preempt? In other words, that, that's a good question. Uh, is a, what is called a preemptive strike, is that called defense or is that called offense? Do you have to wait, in other words, until you're invaded? So again, there's a machlokas. Some say you got to wait till there's an actual invasion. Others say that doesn't make a lot of sense. If you know, if you know they're coming, why can't you go after them? For example, Israel uh, in the 1980s, again, without asking halacha, they blew up uh, a nuclear reactor. Uh, it was in Iraq. Iraq, I think. They blew up, a, right? Now, Iraq had not done anything yet. They had not invaded anybody. But this was a preemptive strike to prevent a future danger from materializing. Yeah. Yeah, you were saying? So you're saying a preemptive attack is a... So uh, it's a, uh, these, these, these are machloksim, but there is a grounds that a preemptive, uh, preemptive strike to prevent loss of life yeah. uh, would be... Yeah, part of the question of going back into their lives. Yeah, so that, that would be the same issue. Meaning like this, meaning, meaning, if, you know, you, if you would know they're never going to do this again, then you're right. Once they're finished, they're finished. But usually what happens is they're just going to regroup and come back. So at that point, you can finish them off. Meaning it all depends on the situation. Uh, it is very rare that these modern uh, terrorist uh, groups uh, simply change their ways, become Balei Tshuva, and say, okay, we learned our lesson, you know, never again. They change their name. Yeah, yeah. They change their name. They change their locations. Uh, whatever. So in such a situation, you can you can finish them off. Uh, now, of the three categories, you'll notice that there's one fourth one that the Rambam does not mention, and the one that he does not mention is a war to regain territory of Eretz Israel. Meaning, uh, let's assume that nobody's threatening us. But Syria happens to be in possession of land that is within the biblical boundaries of Eretz Israel. A war of conquest. Can we, can we engage in an aggressive war of conquest to get back the land of Israel? The Rambam, by omission, implies no. And I'll explain why. Nachmanides, Ramban, right? Ramban, Rav Moshe ben Nachman, actually says yes. Now let me explain that this is connected to another machlokas, meaning this disagreement about war of conquest of the land of Israel depends on a machlokas, a famous machlokas, Rambam and Ramban. Is there a mitzvah to live in the land of Israel? Nachmanides, I'll start with him first because he's explicit. Nachmanides actually takes the position that there's a Torah commandment on every Jew to live in Eretz Yisrael. This is Ramban. And part of that commandment is to conquer every inch. Ramban? Ramban, Nachmanides, Nachmanides. According to Ramban, there is a mitzvah to live in the land of Israel. And part of that mitzvah is to conquer every inch of biblical Eretz Yisrael, going into Syria, whatever. And according to Ramban Nachmanides, 
that would be Milchemes Mitzvah too. That would be a fourth Milchemes Mitzvah. But Rambam Maimonides, although he does talk about the spiritual blessing of living in Eretz Israel, he does acknowledge that, but he himself does not count it as an obligation. And therefore, there is no obligation to conquer the land of Israel. Now, this gets us into an interesting issue about giving up land for peace. In other words, throughout the years, uh, the Israeli government, in fact, that's how, that's how Gaza was created. Uh, the Israeli government has given up land mm-hmm. to Palestinians in an attempt to get peace. Right? That's why the West Bank is under the Palestinian Authority, and that's why Gaza was initially, initially under the disengagement in Gaza was initially under the Palestinian Authority, and then Hamas themselves uh, had a war with the, Palestine, the PA. Now, the general issue, are you allowed to give up land for peace? Let's think about this for a moment. Because the Rebbe had a very, very interesting position, and um, I'm sure he's not happy about it. I mean, he's been, not that he needs my ask, he's been proven to be right, although I'm very, very sure he would be very happy if he would be proven to be wrong. The Rebbe took the position that, yeah, if you could get peace by giving up land, go ahead and do it. In other words, the Rebbe said, Land for peace is permitted, but, the Rebbe said, it's a fake equation. You will not get peace by giving up land. Rather, by bringing the enemy closer and closer and closer to your cities, you will enable them to bomb you and terrorize you. See, it's important to understand the subtlety here. There were rabbis who took the position, you're not allowed to give up land even if you're going to save lives. In other words, they said the land is more important than the life. That was not the Rebbe's position. The Rebbe said saving Jewish lives is more important than holding on to land. So if you could tell me that giving up land is going to save a Jewish life, the Rebbe would have been in favor of it. But his point is, it was wishful thinking. It was imaginary thinking. It was tragic thinking. Because if you think you're going to save lives by giving up your land, you're making a tremendous mistake. Now the truth is, even before... Gaza, Hamas, Simchas Torah. We've seen this already for, for 20, 30 years. But now it's come to a, a crescendo. See, again, I, I want to point out to be sure everyone's not following me here. There were three different halachic positions about giving up land for peace. Position one was, you're not allowed to give up land. That's the According to the Ramban, you couldn't give up land at all. According to the Rambam, you would be allowed to give up the land if you would save lives. And the Rebbe was following the Rambam's view, but the Rebbe's point is you're not going to save any lives. 
You see, the, the Rebbe's position and the religious Zionist position were both saying, don't give up land. But they were saying it for two different reasons. The religious Zionist position says, don't give up land because you can't give up land even if Jews are going to die. The Rebbe's position was, no, Jewish life is more important, but you're not going to save lives by giving up land. You're going to cause deaths. See, it's a, different, it's a different, totally, different, totally different nuance. And uh, in a sense, he didn't openly predict, but, but in a sense, uh, he was essentially saying everything that has happened, that is happening, was going to happen uh, by these territorial concessions. I don't think Israel's going to do this again. <laughs> I mean, Mr. Shemashiach will come and be Gog and Magog, but I, I don't think Israel's going to talk about territorial concessions. If anything, uh, one of the things they might do, although it's, it's a nightmare, uh, with two million uh, Palestinians, they may just reoccupy Gaza and, and uh, make it make it part of this part of Israel. But I mean, but e- either way, it's, it's a nightmare. In other words, basically, they they created a nightmare by turning it over, and now it's not even clear how they get out of this nightmare. You know, because uh, to allow Gaza to remain as some Palestinian enclave is is going to create more of this and to reabsorb it in Israel what are you going to do with another mm. you know two million uh, people uh, so there's no <laughs> when was that given over in 1970 no 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 uh, it was given over in uh, like 2007 2005 or oh. 2000, yeah yeah mm. what happened was there were a lot of Jewish I mean, I mean there, there was always mixed there were always Arabs living there but there were a lot of beautiful Jewish settlements. Gush Katif was one of them. Uh, it was very lush, very fertile. Uh, they had beautiful greenhouses that were producing flowers and vegetables. And um, if you remember, uh, a lot of Jews voluntarily left when the government said, you know, you have to leave. Mm-hmm. Other Jews, I mean, had the Israeli army had to forcibly, mm-hmm. I mean, it was really one of the great tragic pictures of Israeli soldiers. A lot of soldiers refused to do it. They refused to carry out the order. Uh, and those who, even those who did it were crying, but they physically took Jews out. Uh, I remember Gush Katif, and people were dislocated. Uh, and they left, they left them beautiful orchards and fields and, and greenhouses, which could have been, you know, this was a major economy. This is like leaving them millions of dollars of industry. And within six months, the whole thing is like turning into a slum. It turned into mm. a slum. Uh, Hamas, you know, the millions, maybe billions, I don't have all the, the numbers, billions of dollars uh, came from Israel, came from America, came, and it all went for the tunnels. Population starves. Uh, they live in a, in a hellhole which of, their own, of their own creation because every cent, every cent was uh, spent on... Uh, Constructing rockets and tunnels and terrorism and everything else. Uh, now, what what the question you have to ask, and this really gets back to what you said at the very beginning. So you say, okay, it's wrong to kill civilians, and I, I agree. But the question becomes: these civilians voted in Hamas. They voted mm-hmm. them in, and, and they you know, and you know, and they apparently approved of, of what Hamas was doing. Now. Maybe you'll say, I, I don't know as mu- enough about it as I should, well, maybe they were afraid. Maybe Hamas would kill That's them. 
Okay, so that's going to be an issue. Meaning, did they really, really endorse Hamas, or, or did they just, out of fear, out of fear, they, they have to go along? They're also victims. They're also prisoners, and the like. But the one thing is true that this thing about Gaza is an open air concentration camp, blah blah blah. Yeah, maybe you know, maybe it is, but that's because they made it that way. When the Israelis left, uh, Gaza was very beautiful, very um, you know full of lush fields, was on the Mediterranean. They could have built hotels. It could have been a vacation. It could have been the Riviera. The Israeli Riviera, like Dubai. Like, 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 like. They, they could have had... And, and then Israel... I mentioned Land for Peace. The Rebbe was not in favor of anyway, but, but, but at various times they were offered even more land and different concessions, which they did not uh, take. So, um, you know... All Americans, uh, I include myself, you know, we have this tendency that when you negotiate in good faith, you propose something, they'll see that you're a nice guy and they'll meet you and they'll say, oh, let's go, we'll be friends. This is is not the nature of this type of enemy. This type of enemy sees concessions as weakness, sees compromise as Mm -hmm. a chance to get Mm -hmm. you. Uh, you offer a finger, they want a hand, they see they, you know, it's a very different mentality and, and sometimes Americans, uh, we fall, you know, even like Biden, you know, again, Biden's a nice guy in, in this life. But I know myself, you know, the, the nature of an American is to assume that people want to compromise and people want to, mm-hmm. you know, come together, uh, but that's a very, very, very dangerous assumption mm-hmm. in, this, in this part of the world. How could there be so many just well, you know, here's what they like to say. They like to say, you know, ninety um, percent of Muslims are peaceful, loving people. You know, uh, that may be true, but the problem is, <laughs> when you're dealing with huge, huge numbers, then even ten percent is a huge number. Uh, meaning to say, um, there are like two billion Muslims in the world. So, ten percent of two billion is 200 million. <laughs> that's, that's, around the si- that's around the size of the United States population mm-hmm. a little bit. You know, so yeah, 90% of the Muslims are good, peace-loving, decent people. Yeah. So that leaves 200 million people who want to kill you. you know? so. Also, it just, there's also the concept of like in the 1940s in Germany, maybe 10 years ago they were 100% like normal, regular people that were friends with the Jews, but then as soon as it became the norm to go against yeah. a certain population, that's what 100% yeah. of the population did. Yeah, or that, that, 98% that, that's of the population true, because... Uh, so uh, even if they're not right. inherently evil, they will very easily follow... They, get, they can get radicalized. Uh, right, yeah. which, we, we're, which we're seeing in the Western yep. world. Yep, in, in America, in America, in America. Uh, Harvard University, well, yeah, I'm sure you follow this. Harvard University, you had um, 30 student organizations signed a uh, whole bunch of petitions that uh, everything is Israel's fault because of Israel's occupation of, of Gaza. And what happened was, what happened was that uh, some, some of them had, had, had offers from law firms for very lucrative jobs, and, and the offers were taken, were taken back. And all of a sudden, they all did true, but I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it, I didn't know what I was signing. <laughs> exactly, right? So it's just, it's very easy for them to become, so yeah, yeah. maybe 90% It's of one thing, if, if they would have done it before the offer was withdrawn, I, I, would, I would respect the chuba a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> they're basically begging, like when you get yeah, they're begging to get, 
they're begging to get their job back, so they, they, they do, they do too. Okay, yeah, and, and, and the like, okay. All right, so, um, all right, so these are the three categories of Muhammad's mitzvah. Now, we then come to number two, which may be a little difficult, and that's called Milchemes Rishus, optional wars. Now, an optional war, this is going to sound very, very strange, but, but if you keep on listening, it'll, hopefully it'll be a little clear. That actually means a war where Israel gets up one day and simply says, you know, we would like to conquer the Saudi Arabian oil fields. We need some oil here. So let's wage war against Saudi Arabia. Huh? That's called an optional war. It's not a mitzvah, but if you want to, you could. Now, that sounds awful. Are you telling me the halacha permits optional, aggressive wars of expansion like Saddam Hussein, you know, going after Kuwait so Israel can go after Saudi Arabia? So here's the thing. There is indeed a concept of optional wars of expansion, but there are certain conditions that have to be met, which make it impossible today. Condition one is there must be a Jewish melech. So it only applies when you have a melech. Condition two, there must be a Sanhedrin that approves it, and and they're not going to approve it normally. Now, condition three is the big one. You know that one of the Kohen Gadol's garments that the Kohen Gadol wore is the breastplate with 12 jewels. Right. The what? The, yeah, yeah. So that's the Choshen. And in the Choshen, there was a piece of parchment that was like, had the names of Hashem on it that's called the Urim Betumim. Again, mm-hmm. a lot of people are confused. Urim Betumim is not the name of the breastplate. Urim Betumim is the name of the cloth inserted in the folds of the breastplate mm-hmm. that okay. made the breastplate, the breastplate is called Choshen, that made the breastplate a prophetic medium. Mm-hmm. Now, how did it work? On each of the 12 stones was engraved a name of the tribe of Israel, you know, Ruben Shema. Mm-hmm. And the Kohen Gadol would ask Hashem through the Urim Betumim for guidance, and letters would light up giving answers. So, which basically means, yeah, you can invade, you can invade Saudi Arabia if Hashem gives you permission through the Urim Betumim. So it could only really happen during the times of Beis Arabia. That's correct. Can a Kohen? Only through a Kohen? And only through the Kohen. But that means, but, but, but right. since, since the Kohen is functioning as a prophet, so wars of expansion are only permitted with direct divine Authorization. Now, you may ask me a question. Well, why would God authorize that? Why would God authorize an aggressive war against Saudi Arabia? Now, I don't know if he would. Uh, I don't know how often this ever happened. But theoretically, there may be reasons. But the, but the point basically is, without a melech, without a Sanhedrin, and without the Kohen Gadol and the Beis HaMikdash and the Urim Betumim, there is no such thing as an aggressive war of expansion. In the eyes of Jewish law, an aggressive war of expansion is forbidden, and anyone that you kill in that war, you're a murderer, meaning there's no heter to wage such a war. So, so it turns out the following. Of the three categories of Nuhamas mitzvah, we only have one. 
and there is no category of Muhammad Rishus that is permitted today. So the only halachic war that a Jewish state would be allowed to fight is a defensive war. And then the question becomes preemption and the like. You know, we discussed different machloksim, what is called a war of defense, right? So every single thing, every heter, heter, any legitimacy of war must be based on defensive considerations. There is no concept. Now, the exception might be Ramban. If you followed Ramban, he might allow an aggressive war to conquer territory within the land of Israel. That's Ramban. Ramban apparently does not allow even that. According to Rambam, Maimonides, wars of defense are the only ones that are permitted. Uh, Yeah? Um, Is there any, like, halakhic backing to say that if if a war is done through the concept of halakha, right, through only doing it in the defensive way of a milchamas mitzvah, is, there, is it more likely that this war will be won? Well, I, I think it's generally going to be the case that uh, when you follow Hashem's Torah, you will be blessed with greater success than when you don't follow Hashem's Torah. Uh, we don't always know that because sometimes the reward for a mitzvah is in Olam Haba and not in Olam Hazeh. But I think generally we, we say following Hashem's Torah is a greater guarantee. You know, this is another story. Again, I'm a, I'm a little uncomfortable with this aspect of it. I don't talk about it that much publicly. But you do know that um, on that dark Simchas Torah when Hamas invaded, so there were two Shomer Shabbos kibbutzim that kept Shabbos, and they were surrounded uh, with a gate. And there's actually a video of Hamas trying to, to get through and they couldn't, they couldn't get through. Uh, so the two kibbutzim that were Shomer Shabbos were not, in, were not, were not affected at all. Wow. Now, it's a little... It's a, it's in a little, that area? Both in, in, that that area, area. in that area. In that area. They were all located in the, in the same... Like, yeah, same yeah. Village. As opposed to the uh, concert where mm-hmm. a lot of stuff is going on. Uh, now, it's a delicate thing because this is not a time where you want to point fingers at other people and say, oh, they're not really right. It's not to say that so, because they, kept, yeah, because yeah, they yeah. didn't keep Shabbos, they were... So, so maybe, we'll put it, maybe we'll put it this way. Instead of saying that they were punished because they weren't keeping Shabbos, don't say it that way, but say that in the merit of keeping Shabbos, Hashem gives you more divine protection. And that's something that, that is something to think about. Do they, do uh, they know? Until I think they know because the guard, the guards uh, were. I mean, there were there were soldiers on guard, uh, not soldiers or whatever, the, the whoever mans the guard, who was also shooting at them, which you're allowed to be and repelling them. So the kibbutz as a whole was was spared. Nobody, nobody was hurt. Two kibbutzim. Now, indeed, in one of the Shabbos Samiros, it actually says in the Shabbos Samiros. That means in the merit of keeping Shabbos, you will be spared from the birth pains of Mashiach. It says in Zemiros. So there is a suggestion that even when there's the birth pains of Mashiach, the keeping of Shabbos can spare you from some of the pains of that birth. So again, this is something to, to think about. Again, in a positive way, not, not to look at people say they sinned or whatever it is but just understand that if we keep Shabbos you know we bring extra bracha into the into the world 
Okay, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, we've never had an optional war, right? So the truth is, in David HaMelech's time, we actually did. David HaMelech did engage in certain wars against Edom. Edom is Esau. So there were optional wars. And in the time of the Chashmonayim, there were optional wars, although we're not really, besides, I don't mean the Hanukkah story, I mean after the Hanukkah story. Although it's not clear that the Chashmonayim were following halacha because some of the Hasmonean kings were not religious, you know. So it's not clear if they did authorization, but there were wars of, uh, of expansion. But not, not, since, not since then. Going back to your point of like the defense or offense of war, meaning yeah. like we're, we're, we're on the defense because they attacked us, or the yeah. offense, we know there might be a chance they might attack us and yeah. then we're going to be more right. on the offense. Does that fall under those? Because it still would be, for example, if there's other um, countries right now that are sh- pointing rockets towards us yeah. and there's a warning that, that they could also attack. Yeah. It was my understanding that that was an issue currently in the political yes, it is. spectrum. Sure. And Ira- that, Iran is the main one, yeah. Right, and that, that was a big discussion between President Biden and Israel yes. as far as whether we could do that and whether we couldn't, and there, there's a whole discussion behind that. Is yeah. that also um, discussion no. with yeah, yes, rabbis I, I, that they're coming yes, in now to yes, discuss all yes, of that, Yes, absolutely, right? absolutely, because remember, remember, uh, aggressive wars are not allowed halakhically. Defensive mm-hmm. wars are allowed. Mm-hmm. The question is, is a preemptive aggression considered to be an act of defense? Mm-hmm. That, that's going to be the, the primary, that's going to be the primary mm-hmm. issue. Now, again, the state of Israel, which does not follow halakha, uh, has traditionally endorsed the notion of preemptive force against mm-hmm. an enemy. They did it in Lebanon, and they did it against Iraq. Uh, but again, but halakhically, there is there is a debate about uh, whether that's whether that is correct. Yeah. Are we? Is the IDF doing anything right now that's not halakhically aligned? What are you talking about? Well, again, I, I didn't fully I, I didn't fully address the issue of civilians, but but but, but as as far as I understand, uh, the IDF uh, is whether intentionally or unintentionally in full compliance with halakha. Uh, so, uh, because, because again, I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate because we're running out of time and I will continue this next week. But um, we have to give civilians a way out, which we have. And if the civilians stay and we are targeting the combatants and the civilians are what you call collateral damage, that's a euphemistic term, Halacha recognizes that you do what you have to do. In fact, I'll tell you even more than that. And again, this, God forbid, should never, ever, ever, ever come to pass. But the rule that when you're rooting out the enemy, you can kill civilians, would even apply, God forbid, to Jewish civilians. Meaning, theoretically, if Hamas were to use Jewish civilians, now we would try to time it so that wouldn't happen. No, Hamas took Jewish hostages. What I'm saying is that uh, the the requirement to destroy the enemy will even apply if other Jews are going to get hurt. Because it's going to save more people. It will save more people. So not only uh, would we be allowed to bomb the Palestinian casualties, but even if, God forbid, there would be Jewish casualties. There's a big mitzvah that you... Like can buy out the hostages, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big yeah. mitzvah. Yeah. Um, isn't it like halakhically? Would it be? But even with with the considerations that they 
might or will probably bring more damage, like all the pleasure yeah, is yeah, more yeah, yeah, 100%. Isn't it like also... Yes, yeah, so this is, again, I, I didn't, I mean, I mentioned at the very beginning, I didn't get to it today, I'll talk about it next week, and that is the issue of hostage exchanges. Now you understand the issue. There is absolutely a great mitzvah to ransom a captive. This is called pidyon shivuyin, ransoming people that are captive or kidnapped. This is such an important mitzvah that you even sell a Sefer Torah. You sell a shul, you sell a Sefer Torah to get money to ransom the captives. And that's because people in captivity, their lives are, are in danger, they're also starving, they're abused in all sorts of ways. There's a great, great mitzvah to get them out of their situation. The question is, when you're doing it by giving in to a terrorist and releasing terrorists, you might be creating, in order to save one person, you might be endangering a thousand people or you know, the whole country of Israel. So that's the issue with hostage release. As I mentioned before, with Galad Shalit, and he should be well, Israel released 1,000 convicted terrorists to get him free. Those terrorists, over the past five years, have continued, you know, not everyone, but many of them have continued to engage in terror. They have killed people. And at least one of them was a major mastermind of this Hamas operation. So here's the question. Is it halachically proper? Is it ethically proper to say, I want to save this chayol soldier's life so I will do something that will result in a hundred other Jews dying over the next five years. Kind of like the trauma. Yeah, killing yeah. Kill right. To right, right. So, so that's going to be an issue. So, so that's a big, big issue. That's an agonizing issue. It's a painful issue. Amir Tzashem, we'll, we'll discuss this next week. Okay? Um, another thing I'm going to... Amir Tzashem, Amir Tzashem. Why is it... Uh, well, well I, ho- I, I hope it'll be theoretical. I, I mean, I'll finish it because we're in the subject, but mm-hmm. God willing... Hopefully we won't have to. It won't be no Gail and Misa. Yeah. That would be the biggest hope. Okay, you all have a good week, a safe week. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you. Rabbi, is it okay if this is this?